We're going to be in Psalm 98. Psalm 98. So if you want to uh, open to Psalm 98, if you're using the Bible that's being distributed right now, it's on page 500. Page 500, a nice round number. Psalm 98. Uh, in our service, we feel that um, when God's word is read, when the Bible's read, we are hearing God's voice. That's how God speaks to us. And so um, the whole sermon's based on just this psalm or the, whatever the scripture reading is. And so um, we, we stand for the reading of God's word as a sign of the importance of that. So would you do that? Psalm 98. A psalm. Oh, sing to Yahweh a new song. For he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. Yahweh has made known his salvation. He's revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. He's remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Make a joyful noise to Yahweh, all the earth. Break forth in joyous song and sing praises. Sing praises to Yahweh with lyre, with the lyre and the sound of melody, with trumpets and the sound of the horn. Make a joyful noise before the king, Yahweh, let the sea roar and all that fills it, the world and all those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills sing for joy together before Yahweh, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. You can be seated as we pray. Father, it's so good to be able to come together and pray to you together. We know that your spirit is here in each one of us and then collectively as we gather. And so our united prayer right now is for the work of your spirit. We ask that you would Open our eyes and our ears and our hearts. Help us to hear what you want us to hear, what's, what, you, what, what you said. We don't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from your mouth. So we need this word. Each of us in a different way, a way your spirit understands. So move us, shape us, form us, transform our minds, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Then he slithered and slunk with a smile most unpleasant around the whole room while he took every present. Pop guns and bicycles, roller skates, drums, checkerboards, tricycles, popcorn, and plums. The great... Villain of Christmas, the Grinch, thought he could steal the joy of Christmas by robbing Whoville of the presents. And I am going to be a bit Grinch-like this morning 
because I am going to steal from you a beloved Christmas carol. The song, Joy to the World, often sung and understood as a Christmas carol, may not be what it appears. Perhaps you've heard this, but a prominent blogger explained it this way. She's not the only one who's done this. It's, it's fairly widely circulated. It says, while joy to the world is primarily sung at Christmas, it's not about the incarnation. Rather, the song tells the story of Christ's return, his second coming. Now, some of you have already heard that. Others of you are a little incensed at a Grinch-like pastor stealing such a song from you. But I challenge you, think through the lines of the song. Consider the lyrics. Are there any that are clearly Christmas lyrics besides this thought of joy which we've attached to Christmas? Now there's more to that story and I will close the sermon with more to the story. But you know when the Grinch stole the presents he didn't steal the joy and I don't intend to steal the joy of Christmas from you because we have before us Psalm 98. Psalm 98, a call to joy. So let's look at this psalm together. Now this psalm is really teaching us how to respond when God saves. When God comes in and does marvelous things for us, how should we respond? And the answer is pretty clear. Just look at all the commands that are given. Oh, sing to Yahweh, when you see L-O-R-D in all caps, that's because it's the word Yahweh behind it. Oh, sing to Yahweh a new song. And then, verse 4, make a joyful noise. Break forth in joyous song. Sing praises. Sing praises to Yahweh. The end of verse 6, make a joyful noise before the king. Verse 7, let the sea roar. Verse 8, let the rivers clap their hands, let the hills sing for joy. It's pretty clear. Eight times in these nine verses, how do we respond when God does marvelous things? We are to respond with joy, joyful singing, joyful noise. We're to respond with joy when God comes and rescues, when God delivers. When God shows his mighty hand to us, it is right for us to rejoice. But it's interesting. Eight commands, eight instructions to us to sing, to rejoice, to make noise. Why is that? A lot of times we think it should just be kind of this chain link reaction, right? Like, or this chain reaction, like, God does something good for me, I rejoice. So why do I need to be instructed eight times in nine verses to rejoice? There's an important principle underlying that, isn't there? That our hearts, 
are not as inclined to rejoicing as they should be. Our hearts can be pretty dull. We sit through a sermon on Christmas and we leave and our hearts haven't been stirred. We have our Advent reading with our family and we're immediately distracted with other things. Our hearts can be dull, can't they? And God knows that. So he, he actually instructs us. He says we, we need to be reminded to rejoice. And so that's what this psalm does for us, is instructing us on how to respond when we see God's mighty deliverance and it is calling us to joy. The psalm is nicely arranged in uh, three parts, three stanzas, each of three verses. So the first three verses form the first stanza. And if you like to keep headings um, or keep notes, the heading for this section would be a reason to rejoice. A reason to rejoice. It begins with that, oh, sing to Yahweh a new song, a call to rejoice. But what follows are eight straight lines telling us the reasons we are to rejoice. Line one, line two, line three, line four, line five, line six, line seven, line eight, all calling us to, or telling us the reason we should sing this new song. So the reason for our rejoicing is going to be important. It's a big part of rejoicing. But before we get into that reason, I want to comment on this line, uh, sing to Yahweh a new song. What exactly is it talking about when it calls us to sing a new song? I actually think we can be helped by thinking about an old Almond Brothers song, a love song. They say this, just another love song I'm singing. And you know, people sing them all the time. Just another lonesome guitar ringing. The only difference is this one's mine. Why did he feel the need to write a new love song? Is it because he felt like he could finally write a love song that was better than every other love song that had ever been written? Is it because he felt that the love he was feeling surpassed the love any other human had ever experienced? No and no. They were writing this love song because their hearts were overflowing with love. And so they wrote a song because their heart overflowed. It's, it's a little bit like, uh, you know, when you pour the soda in, the, sorry, the pop in, and the, the fizz uh, goes up and, and it, whoa, it's going, then it overflows, right? That's how we should be. When, when, we, when we see the goodness of our God, it just overflows. So that's why it's being called to sing a new song. It just should be what a song is welling up in our hearts. But look at the reason, the reason for the singing. For he has done marvelous things. And then it goes on, it basically just repeats itself over and over that God has saved. God has shown up and he has saved. Now I want to make two observations about this saving that God has done. 
We're going to camp out in verse 3. Verse 3 is a really important verse in the psalm. If you like to write in your Bible, you could circle verse 3 because it's really important. First observation is that this salvation that's been revealed is based on him remembering his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. Now that word steadfast love, the Hebrew word behind that is chesed, which, which is a special kind of covenant-keeping love that God, that God refers to over and over in the Old Testament. It means I have bound myself in covenant with you and there is a faithfulness, a steadfastness that my love is now yoked to you in this covenant. It is chesed love, steadfast love. So when you see that term in the ESV, steadfast love, you should be thinking covenant, covenant, covenant. God is keeping his covenant. And sure enough, that's exactly what is written. It says he remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. In other words, the, the promise, the covenant of love that he's made with the house of Israel is what this is in fulfillment of. So you think back to our sermon series in Genesis, in the first 12 chapters of Genesis, and you remember Genesis 12, after Adam's rebellion had unleashed all sorts of crud upon the earth, it brought sin, it brought death, it brought the ring of darkness, everything was fractured, the relationship between people was fractured, the relationship between man and creation was fr- fractured, the relationship primarily, or most importantly, between God and man had been fractured all because of Adam's rebellion against God's rule. And then God comes along and says, Abram, I'm making a covenant with you. I'm going to make you into a nation. And through you and through this nation, all the families of the earth will be blessed. The snake brought sin in this world, crushed. The curse reversed with blessing for all nations through Abram and his, the nation that would come from him. This is the covenant God made. And so God is saying, because I love, because I bound myself in that covenant, The snake crusher is coming. The curse reverser is coming. And praise God that he has. He's remembered that covenant. Or you think of another really significant covenant that he made with David in 2 Samuel 7. He says to David, one of your offspring is going to set up a forever kingdom that will never end. The prophets pick up on that and they talk about how this Davidic figure is going to be the one or this descendant of David is going to be the one who will come and will usher in the reign of God with all the peace and the wholeness and the justice and the goodness that that brings, the earth restored to God in his rightful place, an Eden-like restoration. Steadfast love, chesed love, bound up in covenant. That is the salvation that's being celebrated here. There are some people who look at this and they think, is this, is this just about kind of a military victory that, that God brings? 
But it's clear from verse 3. This is in keeping with his chesed love, his covenant-keeping, steadfast love. He's being faithful to the promises he made to the house of Israel, to people like Abram and David. Now, it's interesting that the opening call to sing this new song is followed by eight lines giving us the reasons we should sing. I think sometimes in Christian circles, we don't do a real good job of capturing this. We tell everybody, rejoice! Be happy! Be glad! Or even, we are happy, we are glad, we are rejoicing. But we never get into the reasons for it. And maybe you're like, I woke up this morning and on the ride to church, I was yelling at my children. Last night, my wife and I had a heated argument. That lasted way too long, and so I'm tired, and I'm not glad, and I'm not rejoicing. And yet here we are, like Pharaoh Williams. Clap along! We're all happy, happy, happy. Can't bring me down. That's not how my heart feels. In the Bible, we're never called to that kind of happy Pharaoh Williams veneer happiness. Always roots us, roots us in what God has done. When your heart's not naturally rejoicing, we need to be instructed to rejoice. And when we're instructed to rejoice, we're told the reasons. Look what God has done. He made a promise because He loved. And he bound himself in Hesed, covenant-keeping love to us. And then in Christ, he kept that promise to rescue and to redeem. So whatever you're going through and whatever you feel, grab onto that and rejoice. One other important observation before we move on from this stanza. And that is, This salvation is for all nations. Again in verse 3. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Again, there are people who say, what's going on here is that there's a a military victory, victory that Israel experienced. God brought a victory for Israel, and all the nations were witnesses to that. Maybe that's what this verse could mean. I don't think so. Because that covenant with Abram was a covenant meant to bring blessing to all the families of the earth. And then the transition from verse 3 to verse 4, all the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God, make a joyful noise to Yahweh, all the earth. Like if we're all just witnessing a victory, it stinks for me, but good for them, we're not going to be rejoicing. It's only a rejoicing for me, all the earth, if this is a salvation that's for all the earth. 
So what Christ came to do when he took on flesh and brought about the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant, the Davidic covenant, what he did in that moment in the incarnation and what that begun, the saving plan that that incarnation began, what he did there was not just for the Jews. It was not just for the morally, um, morally good, got it all together people. It wasn't just for, at the time, the Middle East, we might think today, for the West. It was for all peoples and all nations. The chesed love of God, the covenant-keeping love of God that would bring salvation is for all peoples, which means no matter where you are, if you're listening to me online, if you're across the way in the overflow, if you're in this room, no matter who you are, his salvation is for you. You. Verses 1 to 3, stanza number 1, a reason to rejoice. The next stanza, verses 4 to 6, is a call to fervent rejoicing. A call to fervent rejoicing. See the commands here? Just, just, look, at, just look at the emphasis on joy. In verse 4, make a joyful noise. Break forth in joyous song. And the end of verse 6, make a joyful noise before the king. <laughs> it's called a rejoice. Fervent, exuberant joy. All peoples, in all manner, grab whatever instrument you have on hand and let's start rejoicing. Christians should be rejoicing people. When the world interacts with us, we're honest, we're not fake, we don't talk about you. There's lament in the Bible, there's grief in the Bible, but it's always mixed with this joy that I've been redeemed, I've been rescued, I've been saved. It should be a hallmark of God's people. Now, when this is calling us for, to exuberant joy, it doesn't mean that every moment of our lives needs to be this kind of emotional mountaintop where kind of peaked heightened joy. Like, that's not humanly possible. That's exhausting. But it's talking about a pervading sense in our life where regularly and consistently we are overwhelmed with gladness because of the salvation of our God. The, the proper response to the marvelous works of God is fervent rejoicing. That's what we should be about. That's who we should be. That's what we should do as Christians in response to what Christ has done. So what do you do if that's not where your heart is at? What do you do if you're like, okay, I get it. Psalm 98 saying, I've been instructed. The right response to the marvelous works of God is singing this new song, making a joyful noise, all manner, all people, grab an instrument, get going. 
that's just not where my heart's at. What do I do? Let me give you four things you can do. I think all from this psalm. First, think about what God has done. It's kind of the point from the the last stanza, right? Think about the reason for rejoicing. Consider the state of your own heart or the state of this world or your circumstances, the brokenness, the depravity, the darkness, and think about what God has done. Find ways to deliberately set your mind on Christmas. Set your mind on the gospel. There are different ways to do that. But if you're struggling with this, you've got to find ways to set your mind on the goodness of the gospel and meditate on that. Second, sing. Sing songs that celebrate the gospel. That's, that's the, the explicit instruction here. Sing. Music connects with all of us a little differently, or, or the kind of music that connects to each one of our hearts is different for each one of us. Fortunately, there are many Christian musicians who've made many wonderful songs rooted in the gospel and what Christ has done that connect to your heart in your own way. Get those songs and listen to them. Make them your playlist. Sing along with them. Sing them in the shower. Sing them when you're driving in the car. Sing them with your family. Sing the gospel. That's one of the instructions. Again, it's like, it's like that popping, f- filling the cup and the foam overflowing, right? That's, that's what song is. It, takes this expression, allows it to overflow in song, a new song to our God. Third, rejoice together with other Christians. Gather with other Christians. We gather on the Lord's day, the day of Jesus' resurrection, so that we can be reminded of the triumph of the gospel and celebrate together. And we sing songs together that celebrate Christ and his victory and the salvation that God's arm has shown to the ends of the earth. There's other ways to gather. You can gather in a... I mean, Sunday morning, the Lord's Day should be central. You've got to be there. But there's other, other times we have... Um, we're starting up these core prayer groups and other discipleship pathways... There's other times during the week you can gather, whether that's a women's Bible study, men's fellowship, other types of things like that. Our, our prayer meetings, gathering with a, a group of Christians um, in your neighborhood. There's all sorts of ways to gather with other Christians. I think of it a little bit like, to use my pop analogy, shaking the bottle a little bit before you pour it in. It just creates a little bit more foam, and that's what happens when we gather together. I can vouch for this because... I have watched a championship game from my favorite team alone. And when they won the game, I felt joy. I was excited. I was exuberant. I've also watched my favorite team win a championship game. Actually, it was my second favorite team. but (laughs) Win a championship game 
with other people around the television. And that was just a different level of joy and exuberance. And I've also watched my second favorite team win a championship game in person, surrounded by 30,000 other screaming fans, rejoicing and jumping up and down together. And let me tell you, it's off the charts. It's not like it was like contrived. Okay, well, I'm with these other people, so I have to feel joy. Okay. No, it was what was there. But doing it with other people and seeing other people who share that joy, there's something about how God's created us that that causes our joy to well up. And oftentimes when our joy is languishing, that's when we want to kind of distance ourselves and pull back from others. But that's the very time we need to be gathering together. Gather with other Christians. I say that's from this psalm because this is a call. The psalms are communal psalms. This is a call to the community to sing. It's not just a call to individuals, right? This is, a, this is what we should do together. The last, um, the last tip I, I will give is, is not as explicitly from this psalm, but I think is really important. Um, it's filled out from other scriptures, but um, that is identify the things that are stealing you of your joy. Identify the things that are numbing your heart. It could be that it's just your heart is numbed by familiarity. You're just so familiar to, to the story, it just kind of rolls off your back and you don't think about it. Or maybe you're distracted. Maybe there's just a lot of other things going on in life that are distracting you from thinking about this, what really matters. Maybe it's a really hard circumstance that weighs your heart and your heart's heavy. Maybe there's a habit, even an addiction, that you know numbs your heart, steals your joy. It's probably a combination of those things, isn't it? I want to say you're not alone. It's a pretty normal feeling. It's a normal situation. I struggle with it. Here's what you can do. Identify what those things are. Be as specific as possible. Maybe even write them down. And then consciously and consistently bring them to the Lord. And as you're able... Answer them with scripture. I have this fear or worry. Look to what God's word says about fear and worry and how we can trust him and bring that to him. You won't just do it once and then be done, but identifying the things that would rob you of joy, bringing them to God and answering them with God's promises is a good way to combat joylessness. So we are called to fervent rejoicing. Verses 4 to 6, all people, all manner, whatever instruments are on hand, rejoice. Rejoice in the snake crusher. Rejoice in the one who's overturned the curse, who's come and brought salvation. Verses 7 to 9 Return us again to a reason 
for rejoicing. A reason to rejoice. Seven to nine. It's interesting in this psalm that has eight calls to sing and rejoice. It begins and ends with the reasons we should rejoice. We should take note. And here, the reason is different than verses 1 to 3. Do you notice it in verse 9? For, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. There is a, uh, a longing in every human heart for justice. We, we know, we know that that evil deed committed in darkness needs to be exposed. We know that that oppressor needs to be brought down. We know that that person wrongly accused needs to be vindicated. Our hearts long for that. Now, now what happens if, if the one who is responsible for administering justice, the one who comes and has the authority and the strength to administer justice, is himself unjust? Those longings go unmet. Which is why it's not just for he comes to judge the earth, but that he will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. God's king will come and make all things right. Now, I don't know if you noticed the difference in tenses between verses 1 to 3. And here in verse 9. Verse 1 to 3, it's past tense. This is what God has already accomplished. But here, it's what he will do. What's going on with this salvation that he has accomplished and this justice that he will bring? Now, now it could be, it could be that it's like a king, right? If, if this king is going to come and bring justice to an area, first he has to come in and have victory and rescue the people, and then he can start setting up his kingdom and administering justice. That's, that's a possibility. But more likely, more likely this is talking about the advent of Christ, the coming of Christ, the incarnation. Because as we saw in verses 1 to 3, that is about chesed love. It's about God keeping his covenant which is to bring ultimate deliverance and salvation, snake-crushing, curse-reversing, dealing with sin and death. It was about that. And that's what Jesus' incarnation came to do. He came to save. His name, Jesus, means Yahweh, save. The angel said, name him Jesus, because he will bring salvation. And the kind of salvation he brought is deliverance from the sin that is in us that alienates us from God because we too, like Adam, are rebels against him. Otherwise, we need to be condemned. So something has to be done about that great chasm of guilt. Now think about verse 9. For he comes to judge. Is that good news 
if we are still condemned for our rebellion against the judge, against the king? Which one of us can stand up and say, you know, just based on how I lived, I feel like God would have no claims against me that I've, I've not rebelled against him. Not many of us would say that. And for the few who would, you know, self, it sounds a little self-righteous. Self-righteousness is one that, I mean, I think even atheists know self-righteousness isn't right. So there, you're guilty too. And he's going to come and he's going to judge. It's only good news that he's bringing justice if I, in my guilt, have been forgiven, have been saved. So this psalm, I think, is rooting us in the coming of Christ. In his first coming, he arrives to bring in the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant, to bring the deliverance, the rescue from the snake, the rescue from sin and death, which Jesus did by taking on flesh and then living the perfect life and offering himself as a sacrifice for our sins, paid with his own blood for our guilt to make us right with God. So then, when he comes again, his second coming, future tense, he comes. We can celebrate. The rule of Christ is here, and I get to enjoy the benefits of that instead of having the sword set against me. Now, I skipped over the first two verses, and you're probably going, okay, what's going on with rivers clapping? Conveniently skip? Hills singing? You might have noticed those first two verses are less about People rejoicing and more about all of creation. Yes, we're included in the second half of verse 7, the world and all who dwell in it. So yes, that includes us. But this is talking about creation singing. What's going on with that? When Adam rebelled, the, the dark rain that that ushered in affects creation. So that creation is shackled. All the glory that it was created for is held back, tainted. If we could but for a moment see the glory of what creation was intended for in Eden, All that we see now would pale in comparison. Yes, God's creation is beautiful. Yes, you can see so much of it and marvel at the creator's hand, but it is limited and it creaks and it moans and it groans. Animals have to kill each other just to get food. Sometimes the beautiful majesty of the ocean rises up as a tsunami and brings destruction. The rivers that flow occasionally dry up and drought ensues. You don't have to look far to see ways that creation itself groans and, and creaks under the weight of mankind's rebellion. Uh, 
And the Bible teaches in Romans 8 that there's a certain groaning that creation then feels, a longing for the time when Jesus returns and sets everything right and the shackles that hold back creation are undone and it's freed to be what it was created to be in all its glory and majesty. I just, I just want to relate a comment here. There is a resurgence of late in concern for creation. Sometimes at the expense of the good things God's doing in this world, the salvation he brings, sometimes at the expense of humans. Here together in the New Testament you have, or in the psalm, I mean, you have God's deliverance, which includes and is, is it, it emphasizes his deliverance of humans who, whose own rebellion is what brought the mess of this world. But it does include the liberating of creation. There's a balance here that our world can't strike. Creation is long. Now, it doesn't mean that actual stones are going to start shouting or the rivers are going to all suddenly grow hands and they'll be clapping or something like that. It's just saying when Jesus comes and the very things that creation was created for, it's free to do, it'll be like this huge symphony of creation all praising the glory of God. And it's saying you and I, if we're in Christ, get to participate in that glorious creation-wide symphony as all creation exalts together, glorifying the God who created it. So a call to rejoice, giving us the reason for rejoicing in 1 to 3. It was the salvation he's brought. Here it is the justice he will bring. Now, I've been talking about the psalm as it relates to the incarnation, as it relates to Christmas. The question is, is this psalm a Christmas psalm? Can't this song just be about how we respond to any victory of God? I think there are implications for any time we see God's victory. Some of the ancient Jews felt like this was probably about the Exodus, when they were delivered from Egypt by God's mighty hand. Others thought maybe this refers to the time of the return from exile, when Israel had to go into exile because of their sin, and God brings them back. There's a certain sense where this would be a fitting psalm for all of that. But in its most profound sense, not a small s capital or lowercase s salvation, but a capital S salvation. In its most profound sense, I do believe this is a Christmas psalm. I believe that because it is the incarnation that shows God's fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant, and that is talked about in past tense. And yet the future return of Christ is something that's still future at the vantage point of this psalm. So it's something that's really, you can include Easter in that if you want, but you can't have Easter without the incarnation. So this, this is a Christmas psalm. But the strongest proof that this is a Christmas psalm is that's because how the because that's because that is how the book of Luke uses it. So I'll quote from one of my favorite preachers, Charles Simeon. 
<clears throat> and he says of this psalm, it confessedly relates to Christ. The very language of verse 3 is used by Mary, uh, Zacharias, and Simeon in the divine hymns whereby they celebrate his advent in the flesh. I want to show you. So turn to Luke chapter 1. If you're using those black Bibles that were distributed, it's on page 856. There are these songs of Christmas in Luke. And verse 3 plays prominently, verse 3 from our psalm plays prominently in all of them. First you have Mary's song in chapter 1, verses 46 to 56. Now, really this whole psalm, in a sense, um, it, it, it correlates to Psalm 98. There was one old commentator that said, referring to Psalm 98 as David, he said, David is the voice and Mary is the echo. So if you were to read through it and just kind of compare it to Psalm 98, you'd see all sorts of connections. But verse 3 from Psalm 98, look at verses 54, or 54 and 55. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abram and his offspring forever. You see that echo of Psalm 98? And then the next song you sing, Zechariah's, in verses 67 to 79. Look how it begins, just paralleling this call to praise and the reason for it, salvation in the sight of all nations. Blessed is the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham. And then ahead in chapter 2, verses 29 to 32, you have old Simeon's song. This could just be a riff on... Psalm 98, verse 3. Lord, now you're letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. You see that echo of Psalm 98 that, that Luke intentionally weaves in to the story of Christ and Christmas? So Psalm 98 is a Christmas psalm. It is a psalm calling us to joy in light of the salvation Christ has brought. Now, at the beginning of the sermon, I told you about how joy to the world is not a Christmas carol. And I compared myself to the Grinch. The Grinch took all the toys and presents, but then at the end he gave them back, didn't he? So I'm going to give Joy to the World back to you. It was written by Isaac Watts. Isaac Watts was a little frustrated with the dull, passionless singing that he noticed amongst Christians. So he decided to do something about it. And he started to take psalms, 
and apply his gifted hand at paraphrasing them in ways that captured the life and passion that was there so people could sing them. And he set his hand to Psalm 98. And that, that uh, poetic expression of Psalm 98 that he had began, To our almighty maker God, new honors be addressed. His great salvation shines abroad and makes the nations blessed. He spake the word to Abram first. His truth fulfills the grace. The Gentiles make his name their trust and learn his righteousness. You see, Psalm 98. It didn't do much. People actually didn't like these kind of perky renditions of the Psalms. But sometime later, a guy came along and lopped off the first three verses of Isaac Watts' Psalm 98. And he set it to a new tune, somewhat inspired by Handel's Messiah. And it starts with joy to the world. The Lord has come. And it became a Christmas carol. And lived from that point on as a beloved Christmas carol. So the next time some theological nerd comes to you and says, do you know Joy to the World is actually about the second coming of Christ and it's not about Christmas, there's no lines in there about Christmas, you can say, do you know that Joy to the World was Isaac Watts' paraphrase of Psalm 98? And Psalm 98 is a Christmas psalm, as we know, because Mary and Zechariah and Simeon quoted at Christmas. So Joy to the World is a Christmas song. That'll be a great moment. (laughs) Hope you took good notes. We're going to close in singing this psalm in Isaac Watts. Let's not sing it dead. Paraphrase. Joy to the world. It's about Christmas. The Lord has come. Past tense. He's done it. We've seen it. A chesed love of God has come and shown that he is coming to bring blessings that will flow as far as the curse is found. And all of creation is going to join in a symphony of praise to God because of what Jesus has done. And yes, it ends with this longing for his second coming when the justice comes. Yes, there is a second coming aspect of this psalm, but it's all because of Christmas and the joy is because of the marvelous things he's done and what he, we know, therefore, he will do. And so as we hear Psalm 9, preached and as we sing Isaac Watts paraphrase of it may our hearts rejoice let's sing it exuberantly fervently as we ought would you join me in prayer Father thank you for Psalm 98 a call to joy a call to rejoicing our hearts are dull You know it. We don't rejoice like we should. But as we've thought about the incarnation together, now may we sing with joy the song that all creation will be singing. Amen.